Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the Virtual Physiatry Mentors. I'm Dr. Sheena Buba. I'm Dr. Benicia Williams. And together we are Shanisha. <laughs> what I've been waiting for all day. Ah, there it is. Okay, we'll see you guys next time. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Bye>. <laughs> We're really excited to be back. I know we took a little bit of a break, um, but we have a lot of great talks coming up planned for you all. And today is our first one in 2021. So very special. Our guest today is Dr. Amir Hamadian. He is a pain medicine fellow at University of San Antonio. So welcome. So Amir was actually a medical student um, rotating with us at, at Baylor. So we go back a little bit. And so happy to have you. Yes, so happy. For having me. Yay! And you look so handsome and dapper. Thanks for dressing up for us. Show <laughs> off your show off your bow tie. I know. Look, look at that. that. You're kind to me. See, it's like a little floral moment. Love it. Do <laughs> Thank it. Thank you. <laughs> so, um, Amir, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, your education, um, where you went to undergrad, and then all the way to fellowship. Before I start, by the way, shout out when I was a med student rotating with these two, we had so much fun, and then I was there for Halloween. We got to dress yes. up and find Waldo, which we don't know who it was, but it was one of us. <laughs> and who won? We we won. Yeah, we're the best. And I, we were on the winning team. <laughs> you guys were the best for sure. <laughs> Teamwork. Yeah. Um, so I'm from Iran. I grew up there until I was 14. And then since I've been in Texas, um, basically a Texan now. Uh, I did my high school in Austin, my uh, undergrad at UT Austin, and then I ended up in DFW. I did my med school at Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine, represent Venetia. <laughs> and then I did my internal medicine prelim year in Temple at AM, and then my uh, PMNR residency at UT Southwestern in Dallas. And now I'm here in San Antonio doing my ACGME uh, Pain Medicine Fellowship at UT San Antonio. Excellent. Yeah, and we'll so. go into a lot of detail about how that's doing, how it's like doing fellowship in a in a uh, in the middle of a pandemic. So yeah, um, we always say that PMR is a very small field, and some of us unfortunately don't get exposed to it. You know, much later in medical school. So tell us a little bit about when you were exposed as a medical student, and then when you were in residency, when did you decide to apply to an ACGME pain medicine fellowship? Um, so my introduction to the world of rehab kind of initially happened organically when I was a. Uh, doing my internal medicine rotation as a third year. And one of my patients uh, was this middle-aged woman who had a dysvascular below the knee amputation. And so one of the most memorable things for me during my training was spending time with her and like learning all about her story and all the things she's done. And then she had this amputation, which felt like a life-changing event for her. And so what from that you know, interaction, I, I realized that by being a part of her life and trying to help her in the aftermath of her amputation, I'd get to be a part of her for life and help with her well-being in what was a very huge life-changing moment for her. So that's kind of how I learned about, hey, you know, who takes care of people who, let's say, have had amputations. And then as I talked more to my friends and um, got a chance to go uh, shadow Dr. Salad, who's the mentor to many of us. Um, that's where I learned more about rehab, what it entails, the inpatient side, the outpatient side. And the rest is history. <laughs> Here we are. 
Um, and the, the pain medicine exposure also happened a little bit in uh, med school because one of uh, my elective rotations, I was spending time with the anesthesiologist who also did some uh, pain medicine, so some outpatient interventional procedures. And I found that to be really interesting. And then when I was in, so that kind of, you know, got me thinking about pain medicine and in residency, I just kind of continued on that path, did some pain research and you know, spent time with my uh, mentors and I decided that that was gonna be the path I take. Can I yeah. ask you, you know, why did you choose a ACGME pain uh, medicine fellowship versus sports med or um, sports and spine, kind of one of those NASA accredited fellowships? Yeah, um, so I would say it was twofold. One uh, was kind of by the nature of my exposure to my mentors in residency, like I mentioned, uh, both the main ones that were there when I was a younger resident had done ACGME. So they kind of um, were recommending that I explore that option. And I wanted to make sure wherever I go, I have uh, exposure to the full breadth of interventions that pain physicians can offer, um, be it spine or other procedures like for headache management, facial, abdominal, pelvic, things like that. And so that was one of the reasons I decided to initially explore ACGME. And then I also wanted to, I was really interested in uh, the opioid epidemic and kind of trying to play my part. So I wanted to learn how to appropriately and responsibly manage people who may need opioids or people who are on opioids. And if let's say um, I, I determined they have opioid use disorder, being able to get them to the right resources or even help manage them myself with use of medications. And the ACGME part tended to lend itself better to that, um, just kind of by the nature of um, what we do. And that's, that, that, those were the main two reasons why I ended up choosing ACGME. Yeah, that, that's a great reason. And uh, Benicia, myself, and Dr. Justin Thompson, and Tristan Yang, they, we did a, for our viewers out there that may not know, one of our episodes, episode four, we actually had a nice panel talking about the difference between ACGME sports, ACGME pain, and um, sports and spine fellowship. So check that out if you haven't already. They gave us a shout out at AAP Menard this year. That's and right. Like, oh, cool. Nice. <laughs> yeah, it's, I think it's probably one of my favorite talks because it's like, it's one place where you get all the exposure and it's um, to all the fields and see what's overlap and what's not overlapped. And um, I don't think many people know what's available. We, at least Sheena and I had to do a lot of research. When mm -hmm. I say Sheena and I, I mean Sheena had to do a lot of research <laughs> our third year in residency. <laughs> um, so um, Amir, what advice would you give to students and residents who knew they, who knew, um, they know about pain management and fellowship and just applying? What advice would you give to them? now and where their space they're at. So for med students, honestly, I would I would give a primary like broad recommendation of just like learn who you are, learn what you want to do. Um, and like, why do you want to do pain medicine? Um, if it's procedures and the fact that it's procedure heavy and being able to help people with, you know, procedures, medications, therapy, things like that, um, really shadowing uh, other pain docs, kind of seeing what their day-to-day -day looks like and just solidifying that that's what you want to do. Because um, it may look great, but if you don't learn as much as you can about it, then you can't make an informed decision. 
um, and kind of with the intervention side of it, go to the fluoro suite, go to the ORs, um, hang out with them when they do ultrasound procedures and see if that's what you think you're good at and that's what you want to do. Um, and then kind of when they're students, they have more time, you know, it could be even on non-pain or PM&R or sports rotations to kind of explore what side of pain they may want to do. Are they going to be more interested in chronic pain or do they want to do more like the sports, the younger athletes? Maybe they want to work with people with cancer or maybe they want to focus on the pediatric population. There's so many different like small uh, small niches and just the bigger categories that they could explore through their rotations. So that would be kind of my main recommendation. See what's out there so that you have a much better idea of the opportunities and you can make a better informed decision. Um, you know, you wanted to do pain going into PMNR? Yeah. So because of that anesthesia rotation, that was like the first uh, thing that I was interested in. I knew that, you know, procedures are super great. And then I like the sports ultrasound, you know, that's aspect of it, but I'm not a sports person as in like organized sports. Don't know how football works. Like I have no idea. So <laughs> I was like sideline coverage would not be for me, <laughs> which is what eliminated the sports, 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 mm -hmm. sport. <laughs> um, but yeah. And then for residents, I kind of like wanted to like break it up into like two categories. One is just pre-application and in your residency before you even have to consider um, like the actual programs. So you kind of familiarize yourself with different pain practices. Um, so I know with Sheena, for example, she knew from the get-go that she wanted to do private practice. And for that, you know, it may make a lot more sense to do a um, NAS accredited where it's all outpatient based, it's someone's private practice, things like that. But if you want to do academic, then it may make more sense to do an ACGME program. So kind of familiarize yourself if the, the program you're in, the, your attendings are all academic, then maybe go out there and find some private docs and figure out what they do as well. Um, and then again, just spending time with on your pain rotations and your sports rotations and familiarizing yourself with the breadth of procedures available. Um, there may be more advanced stuff that your attendings do or don't do. And just knowing what they are would be good as far as exposure. Because then later on down the line, when you're going to different programs, you could see, hey, do you guys do X, Y, and Z? And if they don't, for example, and you're really interested in that, it may um, push you towards a different program. Um, and then just kind of during residency, spending as much time as you can learning about principles of pain medicine, because it's super easy to be like, oh, I wanna, you know, I love procedures and I love injections. Okay, great. But what's the principle behind it? You know, why do we do, let's say epidural steroid injections? Um, how do pain pathways work? Things like that. If you kind of get a better idea of those things and those foundational basic principles from a resident standpoint, when you go into fellowship, you're probably going to get a lot more out of it. Um, and on those same, same, along those same lines, spending as much time as you can, maybe like extra time or downtime, go to the fluoro suite, look at the spine model, try to figure out like that 3D dimensionality of it. Um, by a spine model. Uh, all of that will really help build a strong foundation or just put your hands on the ultrasound machine as much as you can, you know, practicing on each other, 
um, just figuring out the basics of it, because some of those things you may end up in fellowship and you're like, uh, not as comfortable as I want to be. And when the stakes are low, you, you'll have a much better time, chance of learning it. And those things are all just practice, practice, practice. Um, so those were like the pre-application. And then the, the other thing I wanted to say was like, was research. So specifically, if you want to go into ACGME, um, research is going to be more important. And just asking around, ask around from your attendings or people in other programs, because with our field, there's a lot of different ways of doing it. You could be doing original research or you could be doing like book chapters or review articles. And there's a bunch of different little um, kind of pathways to follow. So for example, I did, uh, I studied opioid use in an inpatient rehab setting. So that for example, is really different than looking at um, let's say, you know, ESIs for cervical reddick and doing like a review article, right? So maybe like getting a much better idea of what you are more interested in and kind of going down that path would be helpful as well. And then when it comes for residents to time to apply for fellowships and interviewing, um, again, kind of, kind of emphasizing some of the things I said before, but um, with practice settings, Again, do you want to do academic? Do you want to do um, private? Honestly, you would be so much more prepared if you want to do private just to go to a practice that emphasizes that because there are so many things to practicing medicine, specifically outpatient medicine, that um, your skills and your knowledge of the information is absolutely really important. But then you also have to know what you're doing. Like, how do you build something? Um, what do you have to have in your notes to make sure you get reimbursed, et cetera. So the type of practice that you may be drawn towards, um, do you work with uh, advanced practitioners? Uh, if so, is that something you'd be interested in, like given what you might wanna do in the future to help kind of align it with your goals? And then uh, the obvious procedures. Um, if you are someone who's very interested in procedures, then it's important for your program to be strong in both the variety of the things that they offer and the volume. And just really get that information. There is no like skirting around it. Like ask the fellows, hey, do you do X, Y, and Z? If you do, how much of it do you do? Are you gonna be comfortable coming out doing this independently? Um, and there's always gonna be that first case you do as a attending where you're like, ah, what's going on? Which first case? I First case. <laughs> Just one? <laughs> no, no, when you do your first case. <laughs> when you do your first case, you know, which I'll be talking to you later when that time comes. You're like, who's watching? Anyone? Oh, no, just me. Okay, let's go. <laughs> um, so that, like what they do and it, it just matters. You know, if you think you want to do imp your own implants for spinal cord simulators, go somewhere that does that. If you think you want to do pumps and pump management, go somewhere that does that. And conversely, if you are really interested in like multidisciplinary pain management, and that is something that brings you a lot of joy, go to a program that emphasizes that. So I think it's just, it's super important to be aware of what's out there and what aligns with your goals and seeking that out. And lastly, um, if you know you wanna practice in a certain geographic area, it might be really helpful to try to train there as well. Um, for a variety of reasons. A, you can get to know the lay of the land, like what are the practices like? Um, is there competition? 
Um, and then also for when it comes time to like interview, it will be so much easier for you to just drive somewhere as opposed to fly across the nation. Um, those are some of my general recommendations. <laughs> excellent, excellent advice. Thank you for laying that out so nicely. So yeah, when you Welcome. said practice ultrasound machine and I started laughing because like we spent countless hours. <laughs> we made our own elective. Remember, we made like our own elective. Just <laughs> we had we wrote no down idea, like a full plan of curriculum. We <laughs> well, first we convinced the program to buy the ultrasound machine. <laughs> and they were like, this is what we're going to do. And Dr. Hamilton was like, okay. We're like, okay. <laughs> we got it done. <laughs> yeah. This now like every program obviously has an ultrasound, but like back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> you can't day. say back in the day. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. All right. So Amir, you know, your class is really the first class that has had to do their entire fellowship during the pandemic, you know, the class before, like halfway through, you know, December, January is when they started seeing those, but you really have had to do it all through your pandemic. So do you feel like that has affected your training? And do you feel like you've still been able to get enough experience and feel comfortable when you graduate in the summer? Yeah, so thankfully, I do feel really comfortable. Um, and uh, again, very fortunate our program hasn't been affected um, as far as the volume of patients we see and as far as the volume of procedures that we do uh, for the most part. Uh, the caveat being that there's obviously been a lot of negatives with the pandemic as far as, uh, you know, doing patient care safely and having to minimize exposure to healthcare, things like that. Um, so starting with the good of it, um, as I said, our numbers wasn't affected. I know that the, the bread and butter numbers for a lot of people hasn't been affected because when we started, the programs had been grappling with it for four months, something like that. So they had figured out a way to make it work. And then some of the other good things. So, you know, we started out and telemedicine was our reality. And so it's good to get training and get really comfortable with that um, because that's gonna that's here to stay. And so if you can do it comfortably in fellowship, you can do it comfortably in your career moving forward. And then one of the other like subtle things for me that's been, I think helpful is with patient care, there's certain limitations now. So if I don't, if for various reasons, we don't wanna bring a patient in for injections or in-person therapy or things like that having to get creative about how do we treat you and how do we offer adequate pain relief if we can't do those things. And so that's kind of a nice little perk of it, um, figuring out those things, coming up with creative solutions. Um, and then the bad, you know, yes, the numbers are a little bit lower. And then um, some of the other like additional training opportunities like going to hands-on cadaver courses or going to um, conferences. Like, for example, the NANS annual conference is happening next weekend and they always have like a great pre-course cadaver training where it's like all day and you get to do, do everything under the sun. But this year, for obvious reasons, they are doing it virtually. So some of those things have certainly been affected, unfortunately, but... Um, you just have to find creative ways of doing it. So for example, for us, we spend more time with our private uh, practice attendings and they've been gracious enough to be like, we understand, you know, you may need to hustle to get some of your other numbers. So we'll help you out, things like that. 
Um, and then the main thing, the other main thing is, I think, job opportunities. There's been, that's been affected with the pandemic. Um, but yeah, those are some of the good and the bad. Are you doing telehealth? Yeah, we, we actually built a new office that was scheduled to happen before the pandemic even happened. And now we have telehealth like rooms that are just meant for telehealth. No, no, it's yeah. fancy. <laughs> Obviously, it serves the same purpose as any other. <laughs> well, you mentioned it briefly that job search opportunity changed a little bit. How's the job search going for you? Because you're have about five, six months left of your fellowship. So now's the time. No pressure. No pressure. <laughs> Um, it's been good. Honestly, overall, it's been good. Um, I would say for me personally, um, I know that I want to come back to Dallas, DFW area. So I've had a much more focused um, kind of a job search strategy and have had wonderful people like yourself who have helped me. Um, so the the main thing has been that a lot of places may not have the certainties that they did before. So new jobs or existing jobs may have to be put on hold until they can figure out budgets or things of that nature. So that has been affected. Um, and then people like before, for example, could be like, all right, start applying this this time around and do this and do that. And by this time, you should have a job. But no one has had this experience before. Right. So it's all new and unknown. So when I talk to other people, they're like, well, it could be different because of the pandemic. This is like it was like this for me, but I don't know what to tell you now. And it's understandable. Nobody knows. Right. Um, so those have been kind of the main things is how do I approach the timeline and then, you know, the actual opportunities out there. And, you know, all of that being said for me, um, thankfully, and for a lot of my co-fellows too, it's still been, it's still been good. You know, there are job opportunities out there and one can also get creative in like learning about different things. So I think for me or for even my colleagues, had it not been the pandemic, we would have been like, okay, these are the jobs that are out there and they're readily posted and we're gonna apply for this and get this and be done. But now we're like, well, you know, how else can you do it, you know? Maybe a lot more people are maybe even thinking about, you know, being more independent, maybe private practice or, you know, private practice adjacent when you have your own thing, um, going out on your own even a little bit. Um, so yeah, overall been good. And I'm, I'm fortunate talking to a few places and hopefully within a month or so, we'll have a concrete plan, which will be awesome. Oh, can you hear? Bisha, I, hear you. you cut out for whatever you said. Denisha. Can you hear me now? Yes, but it's very low, unless it's just on my side. Hello. Testing. Okay, <laughs> sorry. Um, it's probably because I had my earphones in my hand and I was clicking. I was probably connecting to my earphones. <laughs> um, no, I just said they'll be happy to have, they'll be lucky to have you. That's right. Yep. Very kind of you. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, time for questions here. Um, so Carter, so you, you kind of talked about this, but Carter um, really appreciates your advice and he wanted to you to go into a little bit more detail about why did you decide 
the ACGME pain route as opposed to something else similar like a mass interventional spine fellowship? Um, so for me, I will say twofold. One was kind of what I mentioned about um, wanting to get the full breadth of exposure. So if, for example, you know that you want to do, let's say, cancer pain or opioid management or want to get exposure to acute pain, um, some regional anesthesia, which is usually comes at the territory of doing a ACGME accredited specifically anesthesia-based program, um, then ACGME would be the way to go. And how would you know that? I think um, if you've had exposure to both, let's say in your uh, med school or residency, and you like one versus the other, or if you haven't had exposure to either and you wanna keep all your options open, then you may decide to do ACGME just so that you can get to do some of those things. Um, and then I, and I, honestly, another thing is practical. So the match timelines for NAS specifically and ACGME don't line up. So if you decide to do NAS, which is and stupid. you, yeah, which it is stupid. Yeah, because you would be you would be forced out of the ACGME NAS if you decide uh, the ACGME match. If you decide, I like this program, I want to rank this program. That program accepts you, then you have to take yourself out of the ACGME match. Um, hopefully, that, that may change in the future so that you have both options available to you. But uh, I was in this boat. I know even friends this year who are in this boat. Let's say if, if they did both and they got into a NAS program then you know you have to drop out of the other one, which is fine, uh, absolutely fine. But you may approach it from a all shotgun, apply to everything, kind of see what I get. Or if you specifically know that you're more interested in a specific realm, like Sheena, for example, knew, uh, or I knew, so then you just do that part and you don't have to worry about the, that timeline and which one do I choose, because they won't line up. And just yeah, so people, to, go ahead. What were you going to say? I bet you it's the same thing, Hugo. You think? <laughs> Let's see if we're on the Shanisha wavelength. Okay. So I was going to just mention that there are different types of ACGME pain fellowships. There's a PMNR, you know, under the PMNR department. And then the more common one is the anesthesia department. And I believe the one at UT San Antonio is under anesthesia. So I, can you go into a little bit of detail about, you know, what's it like? working with other fellows from different specialties? And is there something you miss like EMGs? Do you have time to do EMGs? Do you have an EMG clinic? Um, yeah, so there certainly are differences. Um, if, you know, when you like just advice for fellows, students, if you decide to apply, majority of the programs, are, the ACGME programs are anesthesia based, the large, large majority. Um, the, the, I think the perks of it, at least for me has been that with my program and a lot of the other ACGME programs um, that are anesthesia-based, your faculty may still do anesthesia. So you, for me, it's been valuable, for example, to get exposed to those principles. And one example that I gave was at regional anesthesia. So because the anesthesia colleagues have spent you know, four years of their training doing a lot of preoperative regional and uh, regional management for people's anesthesia, and so we would get, I've had the opportunity to do that as well, which kind of helps this other element, this other kind of uh, 
this other aspect of pain management that you wouldn't get in a strictly outpatient, let's say spine-based practice. Um, and that's been valuable to me, uh, like doing, let's say, supraclavicular blocks for someone who's having distal radius uh, surgery. And it just puts things into this whole other perspective, especially for us who do you know, a lot of brachial plexus stuff and EMGs. And then a downside has been, um, you know, I don't get to do EMGs, for example. So if you do know that you want to continue that uh, skill set, then going to a program that has time for that or it's built in, that might be helpful. And then most ACGME anesthesia-based programs tend to be a lot more pain-heavy and a lot less, uh, which means chronic pain, basically, for the most part, and a lot less sports-heavy. So that's just, it's good to know that as far as the population you're going to be most exposed to and getting the most experience in. Um, like I, ha I don't, I've maybe seen a handful of athletes, the rest have been, you know, the likes of me and other people who are not <laughs> really athletes. <laughs> um, so those are kind of the main differences, I would say. Would you say that going in compared to, I don't know if your co-fellow was a pain, it was PMNR or anesthesia, but could you tell a difference in physical exam, like seeing patients and doing the physical exam and narrowing down on what the diagnosis was versus maybe your anesthesia colleagues. Yeah, absolutely. And my program is unique. There's six of us and they're of the six, four PM&R, one anesthesia and one emergency medicine. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So we are among the majority. It almost feels like a PM&R program because like we're PM&R, one of our main faculty members is PM&R, but absolutely. Like we are so much more comfortable with the, even like, you know, history taking, you know, musculoskeletal pain complaint history taking, because we've just been doing it for three, four years. So that part, certainly the physical exam, um, being thorough and realizing also how do I go from being thorough to being efficient, to getting what's important and pertinent and what is, what may not matter based on this pain complaint. So that is absolutely uh, a perk of being PM&R trained. And then let's say a perk of being anesthesia trained is that they've had their hand on needles for a lot more than we've had, uh, like EMG not counting. So they are a little bit more comfortable uh, and around the needles. And let's say they're doing epidurals even, being in the epidural space and navigating that. They've just done so many of them, you know, with landmark guidance. So for them, that's more comfortable territory. And then ultimately we all- That's because you learn from each other, right? Yeah, yeah, and that's the balance. And the cool thing, if you do go to a program that has both, you learn from each other. You know, I, my anesthesia colleague would help me with, let's say, like when I did my first intrathecal trial and they do a bunch of like intrathecal for their epidurals and anesthesia and stuff, he'd help me with that. Or when he was doing his first Botox for migraines, I was like, here, I got gotcha. you. <laughs> nice. All right, Cindy has a few questions for you. How did you narrow down where to apply? And how many programs did you apply to? Do you have a target number of interviews? And then what specific things do programs look for other than research that you had mentioned? And how important is exposure and how do you get it? Boom, all of them, go. Five, I know, five. so many, I like it. <laughs> okay, we'll do it one at a time. Okay, how did I decide where to apply? Um, I reviewed basically all that are that programs available, which is around 80. 
um, decided that I was gonna apply really broadly, uh, twofold, because to maximize chances of matching and then to get to see different places um, and see what the programs are like, because there's a lot of variability. My goal was to stay in Texas, but even though that was my goal, I still wanted to see other programs. Maybe I love a different program and I'm like, you know, you know okay to leave for a year and come back. So I applied to like 50 programs. Um, as far as a magical number, when I was trying to figure that out, there really wasn't one. But the advice that I got and the advice that I give is apply broadly and don't, um, it's much better to apply to more programs than to be overly selective or overly confident and not get interviews. Um, and, you know, you, the more interviews you get, the better, obviously. Uh, I don't think I ever heard of anyone say, if you have this number, you're golden. But I think, you know, at least like four or five plus should be, should be good. Um, it, again, it's variable. And let's see. Okay, did I, I got those? You got your other question was what specific things do programs look for other than research that you mentioned? Um, I think a lot of programs, the, the, the whole point of like research, I think is that you have true interest in the field. I think that's what they want to gather, that you are really motivated by the field and what you get to do for people, as opposed to maybe other perks of it. Um, so one thing that I, I gathered was, you know, the faculty wanting to know that you have a more, a more kind of profound understanding of the field, the challenges, the, the upsides, you know, let's say the opioid epidemic or all the interventions that are available and how do you, you know, make decide between them, things like that. So if you can really learn about those things and demonstrate that you have that deeper understanding, I think that's important to them. Um, that kind of helps distinguish you from the person that has a more cursory superficial understanding and shows them that you've been really better understanding the field. Uh, and I think that kind of comes with the whole, the research lends itself to that. How important is exposure and how did you get it? And you kind of touched on that a little bit earlier, but. Yeah, and I think like, honestly, I would say exposure is actually super important. Um, and especially if you're a student, was this a student question or is it a resident question? That doesn't matter. But whether you're a student or a resident, just literally even going out in the community and asking different pain docs, hey, can I hang out with you? Because practices are so different, you know? So, and most people are super happy to have you. This year is an exception to the rule because people may be wary of having extra people in the office if they don't need to be there. But overall, just going to different practices and seeing what people's days look like, you know, um, how much procedures do they do? How many clinic patients do they see? What procedures do they do? That all really helps you get a better understanding. And then doing conferences this year and probably moving forward, a lot of virtual options and maybe you can choose between virtual versus in-person. Uh, all of that will help better expose you to what the field has to offer so that you know it better and you could make more informed decisions again with deciding when regarding which program offers what. 
uh, and it's always super cheap. So looking into conferences, looking into organizations, I think is super valuable. It will never be this cheap because as soon as you're an attending, the prices skyrocket. Yep. <laughs> skyrocket. You got to choose which groups you want to be. Thousands of dollars for my dates in December. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, and, and so you can sign up. Like I signed up for a Nance conference for 50 bucks. And then the, the attending rates, like, I don't know, 500. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I really echo that because I'll, I'll like um, CIS, NAS, NANDS, I think women in pain management, all of them. I think I know for sure CIS and NAS their membership is free for medical students, residents, and fellows. So definitely, definitely take advantage, take advantage of that. So and I was going to, all of them. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, if you're a medical student and you know you're interested in doing pain or any kind of intervention, you want to look at a residency program where you will be able to get exposure doing those things. So um, I know all three of our, well, our two programs that we went to between UT Southwestern and Baylor are both got plenty of exposure. So that is something to ask um, and look into for sure. There are, certain, there are certainly programs that have associated fellowships, you know, mm -hmm. accredited and non-accredited or NASA accredited, things like that. So if you're super interested, it would probably make a lot of sense to go to a, that kind of a program. Yeah. All right. Anyone else have any questions? Great questions. Great questions. So what's your favorite procedure you have learned during your pain fellowship? Good question. Good question. That is a really good question. <laughs> I'm like, let's yeah. crashing it. Um, I I love SCS trials. They're super great. And the main reason that you I have like to tell them what SCS trials are to the uh, person. Yeah, spinal cord <laughs> stimulator trial. Yeah. So the kind of the cornerstone of neuromodulation and one of the more advanced procedures that we do um, that can be applied and super useful, um, not only as like a kind of a last resort, you know, destination treatment, but even for people who, let's say, need a lot of repeat injections if they don't get sustained relief, um, et cetera, um, they're super great. Or for people who otherwise may not have great treatment options, like people suffering from chronic regional pain syndrome. Um, great treatment that is awesome because it's extremely minimally invasive and also reversible in the sense that you take it out for a test drive. And if the test drive fails to provide the pain relief, functional improvement, et cetera, that is super great, then you no harm, no foul. You don't get an implant. Um, a little perk for residents or students that I learned was when you do the trial, you want the patient to sell you on implanting. You want to go in there and see them and for them to be like, doc, this is so great. We must implant. When can we implant, et cetera, as opposed to like, how was it? Like maybe 50%, you know, like the ones who respond really well to it, respond really well to it. Uh, so for spinal cord stimulator trials, I really like it because um, what I was alluding to earlier, but with spine procedures, it's actually, it may seem really easy from the outside, but it's quite sophisticated in the sense that you have to understand the anatomy really well to be able to safely and accurately get your needle to the target. And that involves anatomy and it involves like 3D visualization of that space that you're navigating. So the- At a 2D, like, yeah, like yeah, I had a 1D film and three, yeah. 2D, but you're in a 3D space. Yeah. And so the SCS was one of those procedures for me that 
really force you to understand it, you know, the depth of your needle, what does it look like on x-ray and where does your needle tip end up, things like that. So it really helped push me in that direction. And that's why that's one of my favorites. Favorite procedure, Sheena? My favorite procedure? Um, I really like radiofrequency ablations, RFAs or rhizotomies, just because, you know, similar to SCS trials, you get it tested out in the sense that you see how they do with medial branch blocks and people who do really well with medial branch blocks very likely will do really well with, with RFAs. And there's no good fusion surgery or anything out there that really helps with just axial low back pain or neck pain from spondylosis. So it's a, I think it's a very rewarding uh, procedure. So that, that's probably my favorite. Yeah. Yeah. And you, Benicia? <laughs> SI joint injections. I just really love when the <laughs> popping through the um, <laughs> ligaments and then like it engaging. I'm like, oh, it just feels so good. <laughs> and you just know it's in. But yeah. I, um, and I, that just kind of reminded me of general advice for residents and students. You know, the, the bread and butter that we do, we do it all the time. So it's easy for you to go into floral suite and be like, oh, well, you know, the fourth ILESI. But no one, one's body and no one's pictures are that same as another person's. Mm -hmm. So like paying close attention to like, what does that inner spinous, you know, space look like? And what does the contrast pattern look like? There's so much like nuanced information to be picked up on that when you're getting exposed to it, that the more you pay close attention to that, the more when you're a fellow and then when you're an attending, your eyes will know what to pick up on, what's important and what doesn't matter in what you're doing. So just really pay attention to that and looking at those pictures. Even just your pre-films, your x-rays mm -hmm. and your MRIs. Um, I know Sheen and I were both taught, like if we're ordering an MRI, I'm gonna look at it myself. And there's been plenty of time, you've seen an MRI and you go to do the injection and you're like, there is a bone spur right here that I am not seeing on this film. So um, it's just very important. So valuable, yes. so valuable. Um, Taylor asks, recommendation writer follow up with programs do you do this during your application cycle with, your, with the programs you apply to and interviewed at yeah i think it's always but your writers okay so right. if you've yeah. if you've asked for recommendation letters um it's customary to like give people plenty of time to do it you know, give them at least a month, like notice, at least, it, the more the better. But if you give them, let's say like three months time and you say, hey, deadline isn't <laughs> for a while, they may forget. So it's totally appropriate, you know, at a reasonable time interval, you know, every two to three weeks, just be like, hey, just a reminder, you know, that deadline's in two months. Hey, the reminder that deadline's in a month, you know? <laughs> and then if, if they don't do it like, like two weeks before then, maybe reach out more often, but I never had that problem. Most people were super good about, you know, probably submitting it like early on just to get it over with. And um, and I, I think I'm reading this right. And Taylor, I don't think your writers have to follow up with the programs. You, it's important that you do, but I will tell you that the, I'm sure pain is very small, like PM and R and people know each other. So if someone at that program knows one of your letter writers, chances are they probably are going to call them and just say, hey, what do you think about this candidate? Like I saw your letter, rec was good. Would you take them? And hopefully your recommendation letter says it all. And they're like, yes. Um, all right, shall we do it? You should do it, go for it. Mir. 
they're important questions we <laughs> ask everybody. If you were not a PMNR pain medicine physician, what would you be? Um, I had written my answer and then I was like, now that as you asked it, I was like, there's a fun answer I could give. The fun answer would be fashion designer because I've always loved that stuff. Like as a kid, uh, my aunt used to like, when she babysat me, she'd bring out like little magazines and I would just go to town. Nobody would have to even watch me. I just entertained myself for hours. I love it. Hours. <laughs> but the realistic answer is um, I would still be in medicine and I would either do um, psychiatry or become a psychologist. Um, and main reason being the main reason I love medicine is the patient interactions and getting to know people and developing those relationships. Uh, it's really important to me. That's what gives me a lot of satisfaction and that's what gives me fulfillment ultimately. Um, and with psychology, psychiatry, mental health, obviously super important in people's overall well-being. And that being said, I'm actually really happy doing pain because chronic pain, 95% of the time affects people's emotional lives as well. So we really, all of us, get to do that for people too, be there to support them um, emotionally as well as helping with their like physical recovery and improving their quality of life because their quality of life is also their mental health and their um, that type, that well-being. So it's all like, yeah, it goes hand in hand. I always do that with patients. Like, it's a cycle. <laughs> <laughs> this was so, so much fun, to... Amir. Oh, yeah. You go. Um, I have to get ready to wrap up, guys, because That's I have another. I, like. <laughs> yeah. I have to. I, some people ask other questions. How can they get a hold of you? Yeah. I will gladly share my email address and my phone number, and you could call, text, or email, and I'd be happy to help however I can. And you're also on Instagram and Twitter, right? What's your handle? Yep. Um, ooh, I'll look it up in just a second and give it to you. <laughs> Dr. Amanian, that's what your handle is. Dr. Amanian, do you want me to share it here in the Zoom chat thing? Yeah, we, um, I tagged you on the flyers and stuff, so okay. it'll be there. But if anyone, yeah, can't the find writer it, says you are always the best dressed in clinic. <laughs> <laughs> thank you writer you're the best you're the best all right guys thanks for joining in um we're back but our schedule will be a little bit different we are going to be planning on doing maybe two to three posts a week um and then do a talk twice a month so our next talk will be in, in a couple of sundays so thank you so much for joining everyone have a great week thank you yeah. for having me this was <laughs> awesome we're so excited. Okay, guys, and we will. Um, I'll share his email in um, cell phone on um, probably our Facebook page underneath this video when we post it. Is that okay? That's Maybe we'll see. We'll think about. It. Yeah. Or, or you guys contact us. <laughs> exactly. We'll I think that. Yeah, that's yeah. Contact us, and we'll um, on our page, and we'll get it. You guys in contact. All right, guys. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye.